Where are these missing pages? This map. We must have these pages back. This one's got pages missing. Why are the pages missing? Like a book with missing pages. been trying to figure out exactly when to start this podcast. Not in my own time, but when in history. Do I start at 1492? Do I start, you know, 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, the Big Bang? I'm sure we will touch on all of these different years, obviously, besides the Big Bang. But it didn't really seem right to start back then. There's a lot of information we don't know. uh, So it's a lot of speculation to start off with right off the bat. And I don't feel that that is the best place to start. I want to make sure that this podcast is interesting and, you know, is worth listening to. So I want there to be some sort of story, some sort of thread to pull through uh, from the beginning, not, you know, meandering to get to some point. Obviously, there is no grand narrative that is told through history. That is not how this works. But there are, you know, some threads that kind of pull us through history that we see over and over and over again. Very broad threads, you know, persecution, uh, war, diplomacy, alliances, genocides, uh, romantic fantasies in the, you know, art style, not love. Uh, those romantic fantasies often butt up right against the harsh realities of the of the situation that actually happens. And obviously rise and fall of empires. Something that is a constant through all of these different threads is the human condition. We We see ourselves sometimes in these people that lived hundreds to thousands of years ago. But we have to be careful because we don't want to go through these threads and start making a story and then make these characters in this history more like characters in a novel rather than living, breathing people that actually lived during this time. It can be very easy to do that. So I'm going to try to thread the needle. I probably will make mistakes. I probably won't do it perfectly. Uh, But I'm going to try to draw some threads through history But I also want to make sure that we see the individuals. We hear the individuals. We know what they're going through. It'll be a little bit harder at the beginning of this because we don't have a lot of personal records. But as we go through history and there's a lot more clear records of people uh, talking in their own voice, I'll be sure to bring those in. But with the thread idea, I think instead of starting at the beginning, I'm going to start at the end so we can kind of get a sense of where we're going. And we'll kind of start to see the story unfold. So I'm not going to start at today. I'm going to start at the end of this era, the early colonial period, 1680. 1680 is a sort of turning point, especially in the English colonies. We're not going to strictly stick to the English colonies because obviously there's other people, other players you know, the Spanish and the French and the Dutch um, and the Portuguese, not so much in North America, but in 
in the new world. But obviously, because of American history as it's unfolded, the English are the main player in this story, right? You follow those colonies through the revolution to become the United States, and then obviously we are here today. So if we start at 1680 and look at what's happening in the New World, the biggest turning point is happening in the English colonies. 1680 is only a couple years after the end of two major conflicts that happened uh, in the English colonies, one in the northern New England colonies and one in uh, Virginia in the south. The one in New England is called King Philip's War, and the one in the south is Bacon's Rebellion. We will go into detail about what these were in uh, later episodes, but just know that they were extremely destructive, extremely polarizing, and had left uh, the English colonies in a pretty rough state. The trade that was going on in the English colonies was pretty robust by this point. Uh, It had about 50 years of growth and 50 to 100 years um, of growth. And at this point, all of that came tumbling down and it wouldn't actually recover until the American Revolution. Over overseas, uh, King Charles had just taken back the throne after a very bloody civil war there and was no longer neglecting the colonies as his predecessors had. In other parts of the continent, the Spanish have taken over all of Florida after many, many attempts and almost a century of trying to completely control that area, they finally get it. The French are taking claim of the Great Lakes and making their way down the Mississippi River. The Dutch and the English have just finished their final conflict over the island of Manhattan, meaning that New York will remain its name throughout the rest of history. The Native American population is about 5 to 10% of what it was two centuries before this point. Entire nations, entire cultures, entire languages have been wiped off the map and completely lost to history. Alliances between natives and Europeans are tenuous and fractious. Native alliances have been bolstered, and old enemies have become friends. So that's where we are, and we will take our time to get to that point. So now that we know where we're going to end, let's go back to the beginning and let's look at what the continent looked like before Columbus. If we look at the AP U.S. history notes about the era before Columbus, it's not completely bare, uh, but it is a little bit sparse. It starts at 1492, but they do discuss how many uh, natives lived here, about 40 to 50 million. They were very diverse. They had a lot of different cultures and a lot of different languages. Of those living in North America, north of Mexico, that is, there are about 350 different languages. There was a mixture of hunter and gathering cultures and also farming cultures. They also believed in reciprocity. There was a lot of gift giving that was done. The reciprocity idea is something that I think was ingrained in us very heavily, I remember, in class. This interdependence was not just between man and man, it was between man and nature. One of the limitations I do see with the way that the the natives are covered in the AP history notes is it's strictly focused on North America, um, mostly just, you know, the United States of America, um, which obviously 
does have a lot of diversity and a lot of cool things um, to talk about, but it kind of, you know, skips over the two major players in the world at this time, uh, on this side of the world at this time, the, the Triple Alliance or the Aztec and the Inca. So without further ado, let's roll back the clocks tens of thousands of years to the beginning of building towards this part of American history, 1680, and let's fill in those missing pages. Who were the first Americans? It's not clear, and a lot of arguments could be made for multiple different people. It could be those that signed the Declaration of Independence and fought for their newly formed union. Or perhaps, as John M. Barry states, some of those early colonists, like Roger Williams, who saw the growth of a new people, though English or Dutch or French or Spanish, separate themselves from their home country to create a new life in the vast wilderness of the New World. Or, we could say it's those that settled this land not five centuries ago, but 500 centuries ago. We don't really know when the first people got to the North and South American continents. There's a lot of speculation about when and how, um, but there's no clear-cut narrative or understanding about how they got here. For a very long time, the Clovis, uh, which is a culture that was found in uh, southwest Texas, I believe, that they were the first civilization to exist in America. And this was the narrative for 50 years or so. Um, they believe that they came over the Bering, uh, the Bering Strait when, the, um, when it was uh, a glacier rather than a sea about you know 10 to 15,000 years ago and they made their way south through the glaciers to Texas but over the years multiple different researchers and multiple different digs found that that theory could not possibly be true in the area that um, the Clovis were situated There were about 1,200 different languages from 180 different linguistic families that all could be broken into about three major families. So it's not likely that all of these languages came from this one culture. There's also evidence that there were three different migratory periods at this time, all coming through the Bering Bering Strait. It's possible that it was the same group coming at three separate times that all, you know, would come together to create the Clovis, but that wasn't likely. There's also findings in the south of Chile that date to 12,800 years ago, around the same time that the Clovis are suspected to have made their way to America. And in further digs, there's even some that date back to 30,000 years. There's also evidence of a mass extinction that happened and major hunting expeditions that were uh, going on before the Clovis even arrived. And to put the final nail in the coffin, there are thousands of artifacts that were found underneath where the Clovis were uh, that that date about 2,000 years earlier. So the Clovis first 
uh, idea was then obviously debunked from all of this new research. But the old researchers definitely did not take this um, laying down and fought very hard for a very long time. And as happens often, um, which is unfortunate, it takes people dying uh, for new research and new theories to actually take shape. And this was one of those cases where the Clovis first idea completely took over the archaeological world in North America until the main researchers died. And in the more recent years, we have come to find out that there is a lot more going on. And the Clovis were actually just one in a very long line of cultures that existed throughout the Americas. We don't know a whole lot about the people around this time, um, besides, you know, the Clovis and a few of those others that we have found um, throughout all of North and South America. But we have some ideas. We understand that they probably came through the Bering Strait, at least some of them. Um, but there's some idea that a lot of them actually came not from Russia and Asia, but from Oceania uh, and Australia via boat, and actually may have made their way north instead of south from Chile instead of from Alaska. This has actually been shown via DNA evidence that there are actually two different groups that were completely separated from each other that commingled throughout the Americas. Um, one from the south, coming from Chile, and one in the north, coming through Alaska. We now know from these archaeological digs that they were great hunters and uh, gatherers and would hunt the megafauna in North America. That included mammoths, giant beavers, deer, and even horses. This early civilization came crashing down, though, uh, right at the end of the last Ice Age, around 10,000 to 12,000 years ago. More and more research is showing how catastrophic this end of the Ice Age was. It wasn't, you know, slow and methodical as it was kind of considered for a very long time. It's likely that a comet hit somewhere in Greenland and spread ash and dust over the entire North American continent. And in doing so, it also started melting the glaciers extremely quickly and led to a mass extinction event that included many of the megafauna that were on the uh, North American continent, including mammoths and giant beavers, and also the Clovis. Um, a lot of their artifacts are completely covered in a very large section of dust and uh, ash that is seen in the geological record. Luckily, there were survivors. Uh, not everyone died, um, but the survivors were mainly in the South American continental and in Mesoamerica as well. And these civilizations would eventually actually expand and grow technologically and culturally to the point of becoming the first major civilizations in the Western world. One of those was in the Oaxaca Valley in Mexico, and the other was in Peru. The idea of how civilizations start has been around for a very long time, with the first discoveries in the Fertile Crescent of Sumeria to the Indus Valley along the Yangtze River uh, in China and also in Egypt. We see civilizations coming up uh, via agriculture. Uh, farming starts and then trade starts to expand and then from there writing starts to come um, in order to either tell stories or to keep track of things, like in Babylon. But there are two uh, civilizations that are often left off of this list, and those are those 
to in the Oaxaca Valley and in Peru. I'm not going to jump back and forth between these two regions. Um, I think that'll be a little bit too clunky. So I'm going to stick with one and follow it through until basically when the Spanish arrive. I'm going to start in Peru, uh, in this case, in the Atacama Desert. We don't fully understand or know uh, how people arrived in the Atacama Desert. Uh, A better question might be why they went there. The Atacama Desert is one of the driest places on Earth. It only gets about two inches of rain a year, and some places have never even had rain recorded. They likely arrived around 15,000 years ago, um, again, either by land or by water, we don't really know. The first people to arrive um, likely actually went between the coast and the foothills of the Andes. And they would do this likely to um, avoid either flooding during the, during the El Nino season or um, just to follow around the, where the food is. There's a lot of evidence that they subsisted mostly off of fish. There is very little actual plant matter uh, found in the mummified remains that are, exist of these people. It's this fish diet that helped disprove this idea that you need agriculture or more specifically farming in order to create a complex society. The society is known to be complex because of the mummified remains that exist. There was likely a, a government, um, some sort of a religious ritual that also went along with it. We don't know much about the very earliest people, but around 5,000 years ago, uh, cities began to pop up in this region along the river. And most of these had small pyramids that were built. They weren't the size of the uh, pyramids in Egypt, but they were built much earlier than those in Egypt. For instance, one of these cities was Kural, and it had six mounds that were found in a massive excavation. The largest was about 60 feet tall and about 150 feet to a side. Surrounding it were a lot of large stone buildings that researchers believe were actually apartments. And this is pointing to, again, much more complex societies than was expected in this region. These large building projects likely required some sort of government. And like in Sumer and in uh, India and China, these governments were created and invented. All of the evidence that um, is available for the government, which is not a whole lot, um, points to a theocracy. It was likely that these large-scale constructions um, were celebrated with large-scale ceremonies and celebrations immediately afterwards. Not only was this government necessary for these large-scale projects, They also helped facilitate a very large-scale cotton production that completely controlled the entire region. I stated before that fishing was incredibly important to these people, and in order to do that, they needed to create nets using cotton. So in the region, cotton was king. Because this was a desert, the farmers weren't um, able to rely on the rain because there was almost none, and This also forced the large-scale irrigation systems uh, to be necessary in order to farm along the river. What would happen is these large-scale farms would start farming cotton, and they actually didn't farm a lot of food. As is shown in those mummified remains, fish was basically it. 
So cotton was grown along the river in the irrigation systems, and nets were created from the cotton and sent down to the coastline, and fish was sent back. The people here, um, which were called the Nordicico, lasted about until 1800 BC, um, but due to some earthquakes and flooding completely destroying their uh, irrigation systems and filling them with sand, they were not able to survive. Uh, The people did not all die, they just moved away. They splintered and created several smaller societies, um, some in the mountains, some further inland, uh, some along the coast. Most other cultures that came after this, you can see remnants of these Nordicico people um, in their religion and in their art and in their culture. One of these descendants were the Wari. They were a much more centralized state than than the uh, Nordicico um, and rose to prominence around 500 AD during a period of very heavy droughts and lots of El Nino flooding. To counteract this extreme environmental challenge, uh, the Wari used a combination of both terracing and irrigation systems to utilize as much fertile land as they possibly could. They basically created a giant staircase up the Andes Mountains, and they lived mostly above 9,000 feet above sea level. These irrigation systems actually rerouted all of the snowmelt from the top of the Andes downwards into their farms, and this whole effort created over a million acres of cropland. Their capital city, also called Wari, had uh, walled-off temples, royal tombs, and densely populated apartments that housed as many as 70,000 people. This nation covered a lot of land along the coast, and there were several other cities, smaller ones, um, that dotted all up and down the coast where the Nordicico lived before. One of these cities, called Cerro Baul, uh, was surrounded by another civilization called the Tiwanaku. The Tiwanaku go back to around the first millennia AD. They were originally located at the southern part and southern coast of Lake Titicaca, with another nation, the Pukara. And after the fall of the Pukara, around 300 AD, the Tiwanaku took over most of the entire lake and expanded even further. And by around uh, 500 AD, they expanded to Cerro Baul. The Tiwanaku and the Wari were very different. Um, The Wari were more intellectual and much more commerce-based in their expansion and um, tried to bring people in via... Um, trade. But the Tiwanaku did something a little bit different, and they were more religious and ruled via deception rather than commerce. Everyone grew their own food, made their own clothes. There wasn't really a whole lot of trade at all, and there may not have even been markets, which is very unique for this this area. There wasn't a whole ton of trade going on all over Europe, but they did have markets, and they did sell stuff to each other. Their capital city, also with the same name, Tiwanaku, was the highest city in the world. It um, was situated at around 12,600 feet above sea level. It was first settled around 1000 BC and became a large power center around 300 BC. And at its center was a seven-tiered pyramid in the shape of an Andean cross. And an Andean cross is, if you took the red cross symbol and kind of overlaid it with a square that's slightly smaller than it 
kind of creating like a stair step on all four corners. That's what that looks like. And this city was largely in a state of flux continuously with large-scale construction projects always happening. And they would actually take the bricks from one to create another. It's really unknown exactly why this was done. It's probably just to make sure that people are always working and to make sure that there's no true dissent because people, you know, left to their own devices might get some idea about how to change society. So it was likely just a power move, and that was it. Um, and in the city, it was likely used more of a, as a as a showpiece rather than an actual capital where a large scale population would meet to trade or anything like that. Because again, there were no markets. So these two civilizations meet up around 500 AD um, when the Tiwanaku move west into the Andes and completely surround Cerro Baul. But they don't really interact at all. Uh, they kind of keep to themselves. However, they do both fall around the same time. Um, it's not really sure how this happened. All that is left is some evidence of a grand feast that happened in Wari. It's possible that they just kind of saw the end coming and realized that they need to split up and consolidate to themselves and um, all, they just kind of let the empire slowly dwindle. We really don't know. After the fall of the Wari and the Tiwanaku, there was basically just a lot of large um, city-states that kind of dotted the entire landscape of the Andes and the Peruvian coast. There wasn't any large-scale empire that controlled all of them. It was a bunch of, you know, roaming bands, if you will, um, that all kind of kept to themselves. One of these, uh, as legend goes, was the Inca, which was uh, started with four brothers and four sisters that left Lake Titicaca, likely from the Tiwanaku, to found a new city called Cusco. They uh, landed in a region in the Andes that was surrounded with a bunch of these small city-state type places. These Inca grow uh, stronger and stronger and stronger, much to the chagrin of their local neighbors. One of these tribes, the Chanca, actually decided to attack the Inca in order to put an end to this. We are Coca Inca, the leader at the time, took three of his four sons uh, away to save them and make sure that they wouldn't die in a grand battle um, so they could live long, long lives. The youngest of these four brothers, uh, Inca Kusi Yupanqui, actually stayed behind much uh, against the wishes of his father to protect the city. He was successful and actually captured many of the Chanka in the process and later, later flayed them alive. And actually, these would later be seen as trophies by the Spanish. Wiracoca Inca was grateful that his son was successful and that the city was safe, but he feared that his son might be a little bit too headstrong. He named uh, another of one of his sons, Inca Urkan, as his successor after he died instead, to prevent the pride getting to his other son's head. This was obviously upsetting to Inkakusi Yupanqui because he obviously saved the city. So he protested heavily against his father. His father would have none of this, though, and would actually try to murder him. But this was unsuccessful, and Inka Yupanqui was tipped off beforehand and escaped and Wirakoka Inca actually went into exile with the shame of this uh, hanging over his head for the rest of his days. 
Inkyupanki then took the throne back and renamed himself Pachacuti, which translate roughly to World Shaker. And this is when he began his grand conquest. I should note that these four sons of Wirokoka Inca are not the same as the original four sons. This is several centuries later. We don't really know a whole lot about the original people, the original Inca, and a lot of these stories even come down from Spanish translations of those that were actually able to get the stories from the Inca themselves before they were tragically uh, lost, either to disease or um, other violence. Pachacuti's conquest that he began was far less aggressive than expected. Most of it was done through soft power rather than uh, conquest through war. Usually this was done by one of the Inca generals going to one of the surrounding cities and offering a very large gift to them. And in return, all he would request was a big house for a new outpost for him to uh, work out of and for goods and workers to be sent back to the capital city, Cusco. Years later, another visit would occur in which roads would be built uh, connecting this city to other parts of the empire, along with a royal palace being built um, and new farms with the sole purpose of feeding the Inca. Then, over time, the city would become so dependent on the Inca that they would eventually just kind of fold and become part of the empire. This rapid expansion using this method would last about 25 years before Pachacuti started to look inward and begin building Cusco. And Cusco was uh, another city that followed the Norte Chico model, and it had a very large plaza at the at the center called Acapata, and it was about 550 feet by 625 feet in size. It was completely covered in sand that was raked daily. My imagination of this is kind of like a Zen garden, but it's unlikely that it's exactly like that. Maybe it's more like a golf course uh, bunker (laughs) rather than a Zen garden. This plaza was surrounded on three sides by villas and temples made of perfectly cut stone and polished gold plating. And it's it's important to stop and, and talk about just how impressive some of this construction was. Um, When the Spanish actually arrived, they were stunned, not by just the gold plating um, that was polished and shining in the sun, but by the construction using the stones that were so precisely cut that you couldn't really even fit paper between them. Pizarro, the Spaniard who would eventually come and conquer the Inca, had a cousin who reported seeing these temples, and he described that, quote, the point of a pin could not have been inserted in one of the joints, unquote. It's not fully known how this construction was done, but the Inca were able to build these temples without using any grout or any filler to fill in the gaps. It's incredible, and I don't think that much of today's construction could even top that in just how precise it is. From this central plaza, there were four major highways uh, that left the city to each of the four sectors of the empire. These four roads uh, that were coming out of this plaza at the center of Cusco, they represented the four quarters of the empire called Tiwantinsuyu, which roughly translated to the land of the four quarters. These weren't perfectly symmetrical quarters in this empire. 
Two of them were much larger than two of the other ones, but it roughly accounts for an east, west, north, and south quadrant. But if you can picture Chile and the uh, western half of the Andes Mountains, you can see why they wouldn't really be perfect quarters. This empire was heavily centrally planned, in which everything belonged to the state, and the Inca, or those working alongside him, had control over all of the goods and the labor in this empire. It's basically what the communists would have considered a utopia. There was no currency, though this was not entirely unusual. Uh, Other parts of Europe did not have currency at this time, or a centralized currency at this time. But there also wasn't any markets, similar to the uh, Tiwanaku. As stated before, when looking at what conquests looked like, the workers were shuffled around from where they originally uh, lived to wherever they were necessary. And they would often just change the style of labor that they were doing or change their profession constantly. They were in a constant state of flux and never really had any solid ground of stability. And I think this is probably similar to the Tiwanaku and Wari to keep things stable, to keep them from forming very strong bonds with other people, uh, because obviously if they don't have strong bonds with people, they can't group up and overthrow the empire. You know, idle minds will cause revolution, right? We don't want that. And this great shuffling of workers also had another effect. The people that were moved around were able to keep their customs, but in order to, you know, make sure that work got done and people actually were not fighting over their difference in customs and religion all the time, the culture became pretty homogenous. And though they were able to keep their customs, the Inca did force the workers to use the Inca language, which was called Ruma Sunni. And also a form of writing was invented in order to allow for communication between different parts of the empire. The best way to describe this writing was using string to create knots, um, similar to how we would see binary today, how computers communicate with each other is how they would communicate. The system actually led to a great abundance of goods, which led to warehouses overflowing with uh, goods, which was very different from the later experiments that we saw of this style of government in Eastern Europe. Even further than that, they, they completely eradicated hunger in the empire. A lot of this obviously is speculated. We don't really know exactly if this did happen, but the Spanish did see great abundance of goods um, when they arrived in Costco. It's possible that other parts of the empire were not doing so hot, but at least in Costco, they were doing great. They were actually oriented in a way that reflected the way the Milky Way moved throughout the sky in the year. This city was to be at the center of the universe, as the Inca saw it. Along with those four major highways, there was a spider web of 41 roads known as Zeki, or spiritual lines, that led to over 400 waka, uh, spiritual sites. These spiritual sites were springs, tombs, caves, shrines, anything that the Inca thought were uh, important to their culture, religion, or what have you, and they all surrounded Cusco. After Pachacuti's death, his son, Thupa Inca, who we actually had given the military to look over while his father was making 
progress with the city, uh, he would became the new Inca. Thupa Inca continued the expansion of his father and expanded the imperial lands along the entire Andean spine of the uh, continent. There was no clear-cut um, succession plan for the Inca. And just to clear up some confusion, as we talk about this, it's important to note that Inca means both the nation and the ruler. And it's important to kind of understand a little bit about the Inca himself. The Inca was the most venerated person in all of the empire. He was so venerated that even like seeing him was a great gift to someone. And in order to prevent this from happening often, he would not walk in public on his own, but instead he would be carried around in a gold-plated litter uh, from place to place. And anywhere he passed, he was completely worshipped. People would clear the streets and try to see him from far, from afar to try to get a glimpse of what they saw as basically a god. He also didn't walk in the streets because everything he touched needed to be destroyed because it would be impossible for someone to be up to the level of touching something that the Inca touched. This went so far as to have a servant hold up his hand anytime he needed to spit so that he wouldn't be spitting on the ground and venerating that part of the ground so that the ground would need to be destroyed. So the servant would hold his hand up, it would be spit in, and then uh, the spit would be put into a container, and then that container would later be destroyed with everything else. Um, everything would be ritually burned that he touched annually. In order to keep the bloodline as pure as possible, the Inca would marry his sister, the only person that would be as pure as the Inca. Though this was mostly ceremonial, uh, because he also had hundreds, maybe even a thousand, other uh, subservient wives to go along with his sister. As was customary since the time of the Norte Chico, the Inca would be mummified upon death and placed into his palace to live out the rest of his days in the afterlife. This was a common practice that actually was thousands of years old at this point. Um, as I stated at the very beginning, the mummified remains found of the Norte Chico were some of the best in the world and actually even perhaps better than those in Egypt at the time. The current Inca would choose a successor from anyone could be a son or a cousin, and Thupa Inca, after uh, he was getting, when he was getting close to his death, which was vacillating between who would succeed him. On his deathbed, he switched one last time. Uh, one of these was Huayna Capac. These two sons fought for control of this empire, and eventually Huayna Capac won, and he became Inca. He was only a teenager when he won this, this effort, so two of his uncles actually became regent for a time. One of these uncles actually unsuccessfully tried to usurp throne, but was killed. When he took the throne himself, Wanakapak focused much more heavily on internal affairs and public works than conquest. The empire was getting a little bit too big for its britches, and the Inca felt that this idleness would only foment revolution. In 1520, after consolidating all of his empire, he decided that he wanted to expand it a little more. And he went to Ecuador with his son, Atahualpa, to bring more people into the empire. He returned to his birthplace of Cuenca and ordered a palace to be built there. This conquest did not go super well, though. The swampy environment was very different from what they were used to, and the population was 
not open to becoming part of this massive empire. Many wars followed, and over time they eventually did get the uh, Ecuadorian people into the empire, but it was a long, long battle. And Huayna Capac decided actually that he would stay here after winning this, these battles and lived the life of an emperor. In 1525, though, he became seriously ill and died in Cuenca. Similar to his father, he left the empire in a state of turmoil after his death because he chose not Atahualpa, who was with him along all of these offensives that led to Ecuador being uh, added to the empire. He went instead for his other son, um, who lived in Cusco. But a few days before Huanacapac's death, this son died, um, and Huescar Inca was actually chosen to replace him. This infuriated Atahualpa, so um, he began to plot and scheme and planned to overthrow his brother. The empire split, and a civil war was looming. Huascar Inca took the initial advantage and attacked before Atahualpa was able to fully build up his army. He was able to capture his brother, but unfortunately for Huascar Inca, Atahualpa escaped and made his way back to Cuenca, where he amassed a army that was much stronger and much uh, larger and well, more well-trained because it was a it was the army that had taken over Ecuador. So they knew how to fight. And after a very decisive and extremely bloody battle, Huascarenca was taken prisoner by Atahualpa. There are reports of this battlefield by the Spanish just after they had arrived. And there's uh, reports of about 50,000 casualties for this battle. Atahualpa then marched back to Cusco to take the throne with his victorious army. And just as this happened, he was getting news of some pale, hairy men arriving on the coast. Before we go back in time and talk about the other civilization that formed in the Western Hemisphere, I want to take a short detour to look at just east of the Andes at the Amazon rainforest. I won't stay long in the Amazon because there's not really a whole lot to say because it is so active right now in the archaeology field, there's not a lot to go off of right now, but it is still very interesting to see some new evidence of vast societies in the Amazon rainforest. These societies may have been just as complex as those of the Inca or the Triple Alliance or the Maya. The evidence that we see comes in a lot of different forms. We see bridges and canals built. They're land bridges, mostly. But we also see, similar to in the northeastern United States area, vast agricultural projects, lots of domesticated plants. And the Amazon is full of different plant species that you can just basically pluck from trees. Acai, pineapple, cocoa palm, They all have a fruit or nut or some sort of something to pick off of them to eat. And it's always a little bit of a wonder when you go through the Amazon. I've never done it, but I could imagine walking through the Amazon and being amazed by how many plants you can eat. And a botanist named Charles R. Clement states that it shouldn't be surprising that there are so many because these were planted. These were 
created by the people that lived here thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, and they were creating groves of trees to to get food from. And it may seem to some, and most I'd actually say most people, that the Amazon seems pretty treacherous to live in. And it is. It, it would be treacherous to live there, but it's not like it wasn't inhabited. And as we've seen already, just because somewhere is or seems to be uninhabitable doesn't mean that it was. Just look at the Inca and before them the Norte Chico. They lived in extremely difficult situations, but they thrived by changing the land around them or or using the land to their benefit. And and early on, while the Spanish were looking around in these new areas in South America and Central America, one thing that they found was an abundance of people, even in the Amazon. There's an expedition done by Francisco de Orellana in 1541, uh, where he split off from a expedition that was happening with his cousin and his first-in-command, Gonzalo Pizarro. He splits up to go down one of the the many rivers that make up the Amazon uh, river system, the Napo, because of what he had heard of as rumors of great civilizations down this river system. Now, so far, this expedition had not really seen many people. It was very just dense rainforests and didn't seem like it was possible for people to live there. But Oriana's voyage, he found the exact opposite. As he traveled down the Amazon, the crew saw tons of people. They littered the the shores of the Amazon River. And Charles C. Mann uh, says it looked almost like a, a line of angry hives. These people were very hostile to the Spanish and would warn all of their, their uh, neighbors that they were coming and would hide behind trees, shooting them with poisoned arrows as they would move by. Despite all of this, these the Spanish explorers were in awe of how many people lived here. The chaplain on the trip, Gaspar de Carvial, recorded all of this as they made their way down the Amazon. In, in one of these accounts, he states that for about a 180-mile stretch that, quote, it was all inhabited, for there was not from village to village a crossbow shot. And further, quote, the farther we went, the more thickly populated and the better did we find the land, end quote. So it was densely populated. There were lots of people there, and there's a lot of different estimates about how many people lived in the Amazon, and there's not really a sure bet because of uh, how covered up, obviously, it has become over the past 500 years. But there's estimates of hundred of millions to hundreds of millions of people living here, making it some of the most densely populated areas in the entire world at the time. Now, it's it's not known, obviously, because the Spanish like to exaggerate some of the some of the findings that they had in order to you know get money for more expeditions to help find. El Dorado, as they were doing. But it is interesting to look at the Amazon to see if perhaps there was more to it. But right now, the evidence is not clear, and more expeditions will be required in order to get a clearer sense of how many people actually lived in the Amazon rainforest. 
we're going to leave South America behind and move up north a little bit into Mexico uh, and go back in time a little bit as well to look at the other civilization uh, that was formed in this area around the same time as the Norte Chico. The earliest people in Mesoamerica followed a much more similar path to those in the rest of the world when it comes to becoming more technologically advanced. They started out as hunter-gatherers around 11,500 years ago or so, around the time of the end of the last ice age, and they hunted deer, horses, antelope, jackrabbits, rodents, and even the odd giant turtle. Within about 2,000 years of the arrival of the people here, almost all of those animals were extinct. This is likely due to both hunting, because they were rabid hunters, but also really rapid climate change that was continuing from the end of the uh, last ice age that was shrinking the grassland. This uh, decline in hunting forced the people to find a new way to get food. So they started to experiment with growing and changing plants to make them more edible. Um, They started with things like agave and acorns, and even started planting cactuses to get their fruit. This later expanded to squash and gourds and peppers, and eventually some grains, leading to the likely invention of one of these staples of this area um, that would expand much further than just the Oaxaca Valley and reach as far as Maine and all the way down through Chile. And that was maize. And it's good to do a little pit stop here um, and talk about maize, just because it's something of a staple in Mexico today. It's, It's likely that this grain was invented. There's no real understanding exactly of where this came from. There's a lot of th- different theories about, you know, different plants that were mixed together and, and cultivated together to create this hybrid species because there's no true ancestor of corn. There's no grain that exists in the world today that we could point to that, you know, could have been cultivated in such a way to create corn. It likely took two or more of these different grains. Regardless of how it actually came to be, the earliest it goes back is about 6,000 years ago. The cob size started very small, mostly about the size of like a pea pod. And over time, these cobs would start to get a little bit bigger. And over the millennia, uh, many different varieties were grown to reflect the different cultural and ecological zones in Mesoamerica. And this is still true today. There's dozens and dozens of different styles of, of corn or maize today. Popcorn and feed corn and sweet corn are all the same, but slightly different. Um, and all of this stems back to around 6,000 years ago. This rise in farming likely led to the ability to start focusing on other facets of life, not just survival. And the Olmec are one of the first civilizations to kind of use this to their advantage. They created very large cities, were extremely talented in math and science, which I will get to, and were incredibly influential in the region. By 1500 BC, they had created their first large-scale settlement, Um, the first one ever in North America at this time, San Lorenzo. 
They built large monuments made of stone. And as was kind of common throughout this area, they had very large mounds that they would build their city around. This is similar to the temples that were erected in South America, along with all of the temples that were erected in other parts of the world. It was a very common practice to build some centralized temple or um, ritual site or ceremonial site and then build the, the, the rest of the city around it. Around 1200 BC, this very large city of San Lorenzo actually fell. It's unknown exactly what caused this, if it was revolution or invasion, but luckily the Olmec did not die with it because they were already working on another large project, Laventa. Laventa was an even larger city that consisted of a very large ceremonial center, again, uh, surrounded with rings of homes. Charles C. Mann describes it as this, quote, There was a 103-foot-tall clay mound, a bulging, vertically-fluted cone somewhat resembling a head of garlic. The mound rose at the south end of a rectangular, hundred-yard-long pavilion that was bordered by two knee-high berms. At the north end of the pavilion was a sunken rectangular courtyard fenced on three sides by a row of seven-foot basalt columns atop a low red and yellow adobe wall. The fourth, northern side, opened onto a third mound, larger than the small mound but nowhere near the size of the big one. The pavilion and the courtyard had painted walls and floors and colored sand and clay. Heavy sculptural objects, including several of the trademark heads, studded the area. End quote. These heads he's talking about are kind of the most well-known thing that exists within the Olmec history. They were kind of akin to the Easter Easter Island heads. They were not um, stylized in the same way. Um, they were much more lifelike. And these have often actually been used to try to understand the original migration patterns of people before we really knew exactly where they came from. These heads are interesting because a lot of people have used these to try to craft a different ideas about where the Olmec and the original people who settled in this area came from. Some of the features people think actually look more African, though others say the opposite and say that they look very similar to those that were found in Asia around the same time. Regardless, these ritual heads um, were one of the mainstays of the Olmec. This city of Leventa reached its peak between the years of 1150 BC and 500 BC, and during this time is when the Olmec made their greatest strides. The Olmec had created a basic writing style or system, uh, much like the Sumerians did, only obviously a few thousand years later. They did it for a similar reason as well. They needed to have some way to count, whether that's deaths, births, trade, money, whatever. And though it was created a couple, uh, a couple of millennia later than the Sumerians, it was adopted much more quickly. And along with this, they created three different separate calendars. A 365-day secular calendar, a 260-day sacred calendar, which was one of a kind, and the long count calendar. This long count calendar is actually what gave rise to that whole end-of-the-world thing that happened in 2012. The long count calendar consisted of 20-day months, 360-day years, 7,200-day decades, and 144,000-day millennia. So 
this date in 2012, which was, I believe, December 21st, 2012, was actually just the start of a new millennia in this long count calendar. It would have been a prevalent date if the if the the people of this culture that still that use this calendar were still around, they would have called for massive celebrations, the marking of a new era. But to us, we obviously don't have that, so we had to create something. So we created the end of the world plot, which obviously didn't come to fruition. These calendars actually were also more accurate than any calendar that was uh, of use in Europe at the time, and. To keep track of dates and and use their writing and, and tracking of, of numbers effectively, they actually invented zero, or some form of zero. Obviously, we don't fully understand what their conception of zero was, but we have, do see them using a symbol for zero. One thing that also did occur, which it's a misnomer that's often used as a dig against the natives um, in a way to either... Consider them noble savages that, you know, didn't know any better and were just peace-loving people among the land, or even, you know, they were backwards, uncivilized, unsophisticated people, um, was the idea that the natives didn't invent the wheel. The Olmec did. They did have the wheel. However, because they had killed all of their beasts of burden, they didn't use them like they did in Europe. And just because they didn't have the wheel, because they didn't really have a use for it, it doesn't mean it wasn't invented. There have been toys that were found that had wheels on them, but they weren't used in larger society. Like any other country in the world, you could probably point to them just missing a technology, and the Olmec just missed the wheel. They just didn't see a purpose for it like they did in Europe. And this is something that occurs naturally everywhere. Europe didn't use the plow like they did in China for thousands of years because it just never really occurred to them because they had a different set of circumstances. So despite all of this great success and and, and thriving of this society, around 350 BC, Leventa was destroyed. But by this point, the arts and science that the Olmec purveyed had already spread far beyond them and by the time of their fall, other nations were starting their rise, such as the Zapotec, um, the city of Teotihuacan, and the Maya. And so, though the Olmec were the first, these others were not necessarily actually descendants of, of the Olmec. They were more like competitors that were rising around the same time as the Olmec began to fall. So if we look at these three which kind of took over that power vacuum that eventually occurred when the Olmec fell. The Zapotec were the largest of the region in the Oaxacan Valley, and this rise began after their move to the city of Monte Alban, which was actually a city or a mountain in the center of three different competing chiefdoms. And in order to live in this mountain, um, they actually created a terrace that basically cut the top off of the mountain and created an, a, a flat area on the top about the size of the Vatican. From this location is where the Zapotec would begin their large-scale imperial operation and basically take over most of central Mexico. But this was not without challenge, um, mainly by a, another people called the Nusawai. 
are also known as the Mixtec. They were a regional power that wasn't nearly as strong as the Zapotec, but they seemed to never really go away. They kind of were just a bug buzzing around the Zapotec forever. The Nusawai were a very decentralized group of several different tribes. It wasn't one single kingdom. It was most similar to medieval Europe with kings and um, and other nobles with royal marriages and alliances and conquests. However, there are some differences. Rather than the king being the head and the royal line passing through him, it actually would pass through the queen. From the scant writings that remain of these people, there are lots of different stories of political intrigue, very similar to what you might see in some of the most dramatic pieces. So I'm going to tell one of these stories. It's not really known how how much of this is actually true, um, but in uh, his book 1491, Charles C. Mann lays out a story of intrigue and war and conquest and family that could rival Shakespeare. The story starts with a man named Eight Deer. He was the cousin of one of the ruling families of Tilantango. The Tilantango were in a massive, we'll call it a war, with the people of Red and White Bundle. And Eight Deer tried to uh, make his mark in history and take over Red and White Bundle and and raise his family of, of the Tilantango uh, above those of the Red and White Bundle in order to basically make his kingdom stronger. However, he failed and he was exiled. This did not stop Eight Deer, though. Seeking retribution, he raised a small army and began a small conquest of his own, uh, raiding and taking over very small towns in the region that eventually became small nations, which eventually became large nations, until Eight Deer ruled one of the largest empires in the land. During this conquest, he became lovers with Six Monkey, who was actually the wife of the king of Red and White Bundle. In 1096, Eight Deer's half-brother became the king of Tilantango. And just three years later, he was killed. It's unknown exactly how this happened. It's, it's possible Eight Deer was involved because he was now king. He immediately declared war on Red and White Bundle upon becoming king, and Eight Deer eventually made it to the capital, a well-fortified cliffside royal palace that was surrounded on three sides by cliffs and on the other side by a very large berm. Charles C. Mann describes it like this, quote, Red and White Bundle's royal palace was built on a cliff over a bend in the river. Guarded by sheer walls on three sides, its soldiers had only to watch the fourth side, across which was an earthen berm. Leading an army of a thousand, eight deer threw up ladders, swarmed over the berm with his men, and entered the palace. As befit a conqueror, eight deer was wearing elaborate cotton armor, a ceremonial beard wig, and a cowl made from the head of a jaguar. Gold and jade necklaces dangled across his naked chest. In the palace, he found six monkey and her husband, the king of Red and White Bundle. Both were mortally wounded. Eight deer held six monkey as she died. Unquote. In what turned out to be a very bad move, eight deer spared 
the king's sons to make sure that the conflict ended on a good note and that his sons did not completely hate him. But this is after making them grovel before their new king and watching their father be executed. This obviously backfires, uh, as one of them, Four Wind, works with the Zapotec to regain the throne. He would besiege Tilintango for about six months and eventually force eight deer to surrender and grovel before him in a very poetic fashion. This was before this new king disemboweled him and married eight deer's daughter. This empire of the Nusawai would actually eventually grow very large uh, and take over much of the Oaxaca Valley before eventually being taken over by the Mexica one of those other players that we will get to in a moment. But before we get there, I want to take a short detour back in time a little bit and talk about the Teotihuacan and the Maya, two of those nations that were around during the time of the Nusawai and Zapotec, but ended up falling before we get to the Mexica. The Maya are probably the more well-known of these two, again, mostly because of that long count calendar, which as I've stated, is not from the Maya. It did not originate, but it was adapted by the Maya and used very heavily in their dating of monuments. The Maya were a civilization that basically covered the entirety of the Yucatan Peninsula. Like uh, the Nusawai, this was not a centralized power. This was a bunch of very large neighboring city-states, basically. In 1491, Charles C. Mann uses a quote by Martin and Grube, who wrote a book, Chronicles of the Maya, Kings and Queens. And this quote kind of describes the way that the Maya society felt and how similar it was to others in the world. So I'm quoting Martin and Grube, quote, The political landscape of the classic Maya resembles many in the old world. Classical Greece or Renaissance Italy are worthy comparisons, where a sophisticated and widely shared culture flourished among perpetual division and conflict. And now, uh, man takes over with this quote, Just as the conflicted relationship among Athens and Sparta was the light motif of Greek life, so Maya society resounded for centuries in the echoes of the struggle between Muddle and Khan. So Muddle and Khan were two of these city-states, and they had a very contentious relationship. The story starts around 561 AD. This is far after the Maya have kind of reached their peak in the region, which lasted from about 200 AD to 900 AD. This is where you see most of the monuments, most of the pyramids, most of the writing, and the extensive use of the long count calendar to mark dates for the building of these things as well as commemorating events. So in 561 AD, the Khan ruler set out to absolutely destroy Muddle. Um, they were neighboring city-states at this time. So in order to do so, Khan formed a ring around the city-state in order to basically suffocate it. And these, these weren't small city-states. For instance, one of the cities in Khan, Kalakmul, housed about 50,000 people within 6,000 uh, masonry buildings that kind of were basically apartments that surrounded these massive central pyramids. This city had fish-filled uh, reservoirs that ran through and all around the city with farms completely surrounding it for miles. 
Khan, the city-state, likely had over 500,000 people in it. And in order to sustain such a vast population, in a region that had very heavily polluted water, the Maya used limestone to basically cover the entirety of the bottom of lakes to stop the silt from rising up and polluting the water even more, which turned out to be crucial and allowed the Maya to set up milpas and gardens for farming, milpa being that farming technique in which you plant a bunch of different crops together in order to get mutual benefits. The water was so polluted due to the very heavy rain in the region, and it required incredible maintenance to keep up with this constant moving of material. This was especially true for their irrigation systems, terraces, and those reservoirs, um, all to make sure that the people did not get poisoned by bad water. It is unknown exactly why the Khan ruler decided to, you know, enact a war or to take over or destroy Muddle. There is some speculation um, by different researchers, different historians, that it was maybe a a way to fight back against a very strong trade power that the Muddle held in the region. That so they were either trying to get under the grasp of the of Muddle or to try to control the trade themselves. It's also possible that Muddle was basically taken over from within by Teotihuacan, and this was a way to either overthrow that that takeover or to prevent any more uh, Teotihuacan influence from expanding in the region. Regardless, the ruler, his name uh, Sky Witness, worked with a, a muddle vassal, the Owitsa, to rebel against the city-state from within. Uh, and on April 29th, 562 AD, these new allies marched on Muddle. They fought in cotton armor and used wooden helmets with spears, hatchets, and maces. And they would carry effigies of gods in order to help uh, help them along the way. This turned out to be a decisive victory. And this victory led to Muddle becoming a vassal of Khan. And they remained vassals for about 60 years, um, never fully being integrated into the Khan Empire. In 620 AD, uh, this a man called Nun Ujol Chak became the king of Muddle. He was determined to completely un- undermine the Khan control in the region. So he started a revenge war and began to basically ransack every city surrounding him, um, including some of his own that were destroyed in the process. This war that Nunul Jalchak enacts is a decades-long war that leads to dozens of cities being destroyed. And this destruction is too much to take for his brother, um, who, after seeing these decades of destruction, decides that he needs to try to undermine his brother Nunul Jalchak. This man is, bear with me, Baalaj Chan Kawil. And to do so, to undermine his brother, he became a loyal defender of the Khan and actually started a civil war to oust him. In April of 679, after a heated battle with extensive losses for both sides, uh, Kawil was victorious and killed his brother. He celebrated with the Khan, uh, but right under his nose, the son of Nuno Jolchak, was placed in the throne. 
in a counter-revolutionary coup. And in 695, the Khan tried to undermine this coup, but was unsuccessful, and the muddle would remain independent. This civil war um, that ended in around 700 AD kind of marked one of the turning points that, that seemed to point to the downfall of the Maya, at least in this region. So the Maya covered most of the Yucatan Peninsula, though only the central region where the Muddle and Khan were the key players, uh, fell around 800 to 830 AD. Other parts of this, this culture actually did last for several hundred more years, uh, for instance Chichen Itza. So it's kind of unknown exactly what caused this area to collapse. It's likely that there were multiple different reasons. For instance, the priests may have slowly lost their scientific expertise and could no longer write and actually keep track of things and, and lost their ability to maintain the calendars. So we just kind of lost the record. So they may not have overpopulation leading to depletion of resources, along with droughts may have also led to a massive disintegration of the cities. And there is a extensive evidence of droughts in this region. Other theories dispute this entirely because of those other areas like Chichen Itza that did survive, especially since this central area is the wettest of them all. So the drought would probably not affect them quite as much. To these other researchers, it's likely that these civil wars led to a large-scale administration failure, and they just did not adapt. The droughts may have led them to not be able to farm as much, and instead of changing the, the way that they engage with goods, you know, turning more to trade rather than internal production, they felt the pain of that. Because Chichen Itza, during this time, transitioned to a completely trade-reliant economy, and that helped with the production shortages that were seen throughout the region. So, whether by greed or glory or both, the... Uh, area of the Khan, of Khan and Muddle completely collapsed. And there's a there's a point to be made here. A lot of times when talking about the collapse of civilizations, especially in the Western Hemisphere, the Americas, before any contact between the, the two hemispheres, there's a tendency to ignore the human aspect and basically chalk up every collapse to some sort of ecological horror or ecological event that was unforeseen and un, uh, unchangeable. These people, the Maya in Khan and Muddle, were human. So they are allowed to fail. They may have just made mistakes that led them to collapse. It's, we don't need to blame a drought for their collapse. It's possible that it attributed to this. This is seen everywhere. But as Charles C. Mann puts it, we wouldn't say that a, a drought in the late 70s and 80s and early 80s in, uh, in Russia and Ukraine led to the fall of the Soviet Union, unquote. So like the Soviet Union, instead of saying that an ecological disaster spelt doom for this great empire, we can say that they made a mistake and they failed. Moving west from the Yucatan Peninsula, and going back in time yet again, we will reach the city of Teotihuacan, uh, which was a city on Lake Texcoco 
in Mexico. It began as a small village around the time of Christ, um, around 0 AD. Over time, it would become a very major player, a very major power in the region, and ruled many different puppet states all the way south to Guatemala. At its peak, this city likely held about 200,000 inhabitants, absolutely dwarfing any European city at the time. It was centered on a a street called the Avenue of the Dead. At the north end were the Pyramids of the Sun and the Moon, which rivaled the Egyptian pyramids, and at the south end was the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. There was probably some form of writing that existed in this city, but it wasn't used often, um, and the language was completely unknown. The city fell around 700 AD, sometime in the 8th century, around the time of the Maya, and after the fall of the Teotihuacan city, a power vacuum formed in the region, as often happens, and the next major player, the Toltecs, rose out of this this tumultuous period. There is very little known about the Toltecs, and there may be a very strong reason for this. Um, They may have existed, and they might not have actually just left behind any writings or engravings or anything like that that many of the other nations uh, have left behind. But one more likely story is that the Toltecs never actually existed and are fabricated completely whole cloth. It is said that they fell around 1200 AD. The Mexica would rise up out of the ashes of the Toltecs and eventually form an alliance called the Triple Alliance, but most people know this actually as the Aztec. See, the Mexica were a very, they are like a backwater civilization or, or nation or people. They weren't educated, they weren't cultured, they lived in the swampy areas around Lake Tecoco. They were bullied, moved around against their will, and uh, never really made a name for themselves. They were eventually driven so far away from all of the fertile land that they ended up in a swampy island in the middle of the lake. And it is there in 1325 that a priest had a vision of an eagle on a cactus eating a snake which, if you look at the Mexican flag, is visible there. This place that they saw this eagle is where Tenochtitlan would be built. And it wasn't just built because they found a random eagle in the middle of a swamp on a cactus, which is a bit strange. But it was because they were told by their gods that, quote, you shall see an eagle warming itself in the sun. And the name Tenochtitlan actually comes from the type of cactus fruit uh, the Tenochtli, that the eagle was standing on. The city was formed in 1325 and would become one of the largest and greatest cities in all of the Western Hemisphere and the Americas and likely even the world. At its height, which could be said uh, was when the Spanish arrived in 1519. In his book, American Colonies, At the beginning of this book, Alan Taylor describes some of the civilizations that were in uh, America at the time, obviously one of them being the Aztec or the Triple Alliance, and he describes Tenochtitlan like this, quote, 
Tenochtitlan occupied a cluster of islands and a large lake. Interwoven with canals, the city reached the mainland by three long and narrow causeways. Fresh water arrived by a stone aqueduct. Most of the whitewashed adobe buildings were small and humble, but some lofty aristocratic houses embraced internal courtyards and gardens. Above all, the Spanish marveled at the immense palace of Moctezuma. The city's central plaza of tall stone pyramid temples also dazzled with the combination of red, blue, and ochre stucco. Dedicated to both Hitzipotli, the Aztec's god of war, and Tlaloc, their god of rain, the largest pyramid stood 60 meters tall. Every year it hosted public ritual human sacrifices of captured people, their chests cut open, and their still beating hearts held up to the sun. End quote. So when the Spanish arrived, they were completely stunned by this this huge city. And uh, Hernando Cortez, who would eventually uh, lead the army that would take the city, said after he returned to Spain, quote, can there be anything more magnificent than that this barbarian lord should have all of the things to be found under the heavens in his domain, fashioned in gold and silver and jewel and feathers, and so realistic in gold and silver that no smith in the world could have done better, and in jewels so fine that it is impossible to imagine with the instruments they were cut so perfectly? In Spain, there is nothing to compare with it. End quote. After starting up the construction of their city, the Mexica began to rise slowly in power, and they used that power to completely rewrite their history. They were no longer the backwater. They were no longer unsophisticated, uncultured, and uneducated. They were now the descendants of the city of Teotihuacan and the Toltecs. And in order to finally throw the yoke off of their backs, so to speak, they allied with two other vassals of a larger nation and overthrew their overlords. This alliance would be called the Triple Alliance. And as I said before, the Triple Alliance is more commonly known today as the Aztec. Um, it was also known as the Mexica Confederacy, and it consisted of three different nations, obviously the Mexica, the Tecoco, and the Tlacopan. Apologies if I mispronounce any of these names. Uh, at its height, this confederacy or alliance or empire, whatever you want to call it, compared to any of the great European kingdoms at the time. Um, this is around 1400 at this point. So as I said earlier, um, the Mexica, after overthrowing their overlords and the people that were bullying them continuously, they needed to rewrite their history and, you know, throw away that old unsophisticated and uneducated and bullied uh, history that they actually had for a more prestigious uh, history. This was carried out by the Siwa Kawatl, which would be the leader of the internal affairs. His name was Tulakailel. He was the nephew of the military commander and diplomat and he oversaw the creation of the alliance. And in doing so, he also fabricated ties to Teotihuacan and the Toltecs, and created an ideology that strengthened their power in the region and completely bolstered their empire. They created a complex theology and divine origin story, with the head of that being Ometeatl, and he was kind of the Zeus figure, the ruler of the cosmos, and had four sons. 
Uh, these four sons would vie for power. One would win over time, and that would mark the new son, that is S-U-N, and the others would be kind of used to hold the the most powerful son in check. And every fight for power would mark the age of an apocalypse and would require a new son, S-U-N, and I suppose S-O-N, to rise and take power. The sun would battle the moon and the stars every day until it could not battle anymore, and a new apocalypse would begin, and eventually a new sun would rise. During this period, in the 14th century, they were in the rule of the fifth sun, and this was one of those four sons. He had Sepokli. And in order to make sure that the sun, the S-U-N sun, was able to continue its battle, uh, there would be need for uh, sacrifices of life energy to this sun. This was often gained through human sacrifice, ritual human sacrifice. Um, It was not just random. It was mostly done to prisoners of war, slaves, and criminals most often. And this is often seen as a gruesome act, and it is, obviously. But this is the 15th century, we have to remember. And during this time in Europe, it was not much better. Hangings and impaled heads were prevalent throughout the continent, and as we'll see later in this podcast, it continued far after the 15th century and leading all the way up almost to the 18th century. So this is not completely different. It was merely a style difference, not a substance difference. So after the mythology was conducted, it obviously came to state building. Uh, That was the most important thing for this new alliance. And in order to bolster the educated population and make sure that they didn't fall back into their old ways, every single male citizen in the alliance was forced to go to school until they were 16. And this actually led to a great tradition of philosophers. The Talamatini, which were the philosophers, were expected to write moral teachings for others to learn. And they actually formed schools that actually taught the leaders of the empire, and they had a canon that helped place them in the world. To get a sense of what this philosophy was like, here are a, a couple quotes from the canon. Quote, Not forever on earth, only a little while here. Be it jade, it shatters. Be it gold, it breaks. Be it a quetzal feather, it tears apart. Not forever on earth, only a little while here. And another, quote, Like a painting, we will be erased. Like a flower, we will dry up here on earth. Like a plumed vestment of the precious bird, the precious bird with the agile neck, we will come to an end. So they were dealing with things that were also being dealt with in Europe, like death and, you know, the ultimate mortality of man. And though they never really reached the heights of those in, say, Greece or China, they dealt with a lot of the same issues. And it's an interesting thought experiment to kind of wonder if what eventually did happen, which we'll get to, did not happen. That is obviously the absolute decimation in the most literal sense of the population in the Americas. What would it be like to have a philosophical conversation with someone from the Triple Alliance? Where would the agreements be between Plato, for instance, or the works of Plato? 
and the works of those in Tenochtitlan. It's an interesting thought experiment because we will never actually see it happen. We don't know. and We will never know. But it is something that is worth thinking about. And something that I think is most important in this story is these empires were great and they eventually fell like empires do, though these ones fell in a different sort of way than many empires fall. And it's important to remember that these people were people. They were humans. They were just like us, just in a different part of the world, from a different culture, from a different, completely different beginning than we are today. So when we we, we look at these people, uh, the Aztec or, or the Triple Alliance or the the Inca or the Maya, we have to remember that these are people, that they had vast histories, although some were fabricated, and they even, you know, dabbled in philosophy. They had the same thoughts that we do here today still about mortality, the afterlife, and what it, what it means to live a meaningful life before it ends. And I think the fact that these ideas grew an ocean apart throughout history shows that there's something innately human that is hard to understand and is what philosophers have been trying to understand for literal centuries, millennia, really. And I, th- I think it's interesting to to see different perspectives on it converge somehow, despite the distance, despite the the complete separation from these people. And something that would have been interesting is to see if there's any difference in perspective between these two people. And it would have been awesome to have them debate, to have Machiavelli debate someone in in Tenochtitlan. And it's hard to argue that it ever could have happened, given the state of nature and what what played out later. But it is interesting. And I think the most important part of all of this is to remember that these people are human and had the same issues that we have. Maybe not all of them the same today. (laughs) We don't have ritual sacrifice, but we do die. And so did they. We're going to shift focus a little bit here and move into, I guess, the main stage of where we will spend most of the rest of the podcast, which is North America. And We're going to start more specifically along the East Coast and generally uh, the eastern part of the United States. Similar to the nations in South and Central America, large structures began to be built around 5,000 to 6,000 years ago. We don't know the purpose of these mounds, at least the early ones. We don't really understand why they were built, perhaps just as a a means to get people to, to rally around a single cause, similar to what we saw in South America um, early on and throughout even to the Wari and also to the Inca. But the practice didn't really take hold until about 2,500 years ago. In this region, the Adena were the most prominent nation or culture that took up mound building 
and lasted from about 800 BC to about 100 BC. The Adena were succeeded by the Hopewell, though they were likely not descendants. The Hopewell were not descendants of the Adena. The Hopewell were also mound builders, just as the Adena, but they're also avid traders. Charles Seaman lays out just the extent of this trade and how far-reaching it was. Quote, Into the Midwest came seashells from the Gulf of Mexico, silver from Ontario, fossil shark's teeth from the Chesapeake Peak Bay, and obsidian from Yellowstone. In return, the Hopewell exported ideas. The bow and arrow, monumental earthworks, fired pottery, and probably, most importantly, the Hopewell religion. End quote. This religion that man mentions was one of spiritual ecstasy. The mounds were generally open to the public, but there are also meeting spaces for these spiritual journeys that would be led by gatekeepers and spiritual leaders. And this religion spread throughout the region, and the practice of mound building also spread with it. This uh, mound building practice peaked around 1100 to 1300 AD with the spread of that religion and maize farming. And one of the recipients of this spread of religion and farming was likely the city of Cahokia. Cahokia is a mound, and it still exists, much smaller than it used to be, close to the city of St. Louis. It's a four-tiered mound, now called Monk's Mound, and actually was larger than the Great Pyramid of Giza. This was the largest of those mounds that were built all along the Mississippi River Valley and was most prominent from about 950 to 1200 AD, when the population was likely between 15,000 and 30,000 people. At the time, this made Cahokia the largest and only real city north of Mexico, until it was surpassed by New York City in 1775. The population at this point in 950 to 1200 was roughly the same as London. This was mostly a farming city with very few merchants and no real specialization. And it's likely that this really weird city structure with just farms surrounding a mound came from the imagination of the people living there. See, this was the first and largest city. So they didn't really know what cities looked like. They may have understood that cities exist because trade existed from other regions and probably made its way down into the Mesoamerican area. But they likely never traveled there, and they likely never really met anybody that had been there. The city also rose along with the rise of agriculture in the region, with maize finally being utilized after existing in the region for over 700 years. And it's possible that this was not really one nation, of people, but an amalgam of people that wanted to be involved with the mound-building experience. And this mound was a public space, but also part of it was used to basically demarcate the status of the people that lived on that part of the mound. I stated earlier that the religion that the Adina and a later Hopewell used had a lot of gatekeepers, and in order to make sure that people understood their place underneath those spiritual leaders, they needed a mound that kind of showed that. And the leaders of the religion lived at the top of it and shouted basically from the top of the mountain down to the people below. 
Much like many of the Mayan cities that required a lot of terraforming in order to make sure that the people had enough water to drink, it's likely that Cahokia actually diverted a river, part of the Mississippi River system, one of the tributaries, towards Cahokia in order to help with the growing population. And this diversion actually also was needed in order to make sure the mound stayed built. The 900-foot-long and 600-foot-wide mound at the center of Cahokia was made of clay and mud. The main platform was about 20 feet tall and needed to be kept at a constant moisture level in order to avoid collapsing. So this all of this water was necessary in order to make sure that the mound didn't collapse, and there were, were times that it did collapse. One of those times was due to an earthquake, and this also, this earthquake basically marked the end of the city. Heading east, we will reach the Atlantic Ocean, and we will also be approaching those natives that we will eventually become most familiar with. These were people that were mostly farmers and foragers and also hunters and gatherers. They're also known to be pretty fluid in their understanding of land ownership. It was more seasonally based than full year-round ownership of certain parts of the land. And they would move inland and towards the water depending on the season and what food they needed at the time. They would also set up and take down their villages uh, very quickly. They would live in what are called wetu, which are basically domed small houses with poles in the middle. Uh, They're usually covered with woven rush mats or thin sheets of chestnut bark, depending on the weather. There was a hole put in the roof for a fire exhaust. These houses were seen by the English, and actually the English saw that they were of much better construction and actually held in heat and kept out cold much better than English houses. These much smaller tribes or villages would then come together to swarm larger tribes or even confederations. One of the most well-known is the Iroquois. Uh, We don't really see much of them in the English story. They're much more involved with the French in the Great Lakes region. But the Iroquois were a very large and, and very strong nation or or collection of nations. But the region that we will be most interested in had another confederation that was very powerful as well, the Wampanoag, which was made up of the Wampanoag, the Massachusetts, and the Nauset, among other smaller nations. They were situated in most of what is today eastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And because these large alliances formed, there was also conflict with the rivals of other confederations. Unlike in Europe at the time where armed conflicts sometimes lasted a hundred years, they usually were pretty brief. Uh, There were a lot of guerrilla attacks attacking the villages. Usually these attacks were for status or for vengeance. They didn't hold out long. Losers usually conceded pretty quickly. Women and children were sometimes abducted, but never killed. Men were often captured and tortured, though. And though these terrible acts did occur, Roger Williams, someone we will become intimately familiar with later, noted that these wars were, quote, far less bloody and devouring than the cruel wars of Europe. 
End quote. And one aspect of this that I found absolutely fascinating when I began reading about this was the amount of agricultural change that they brought about in order to sustain this way of life. And I'm not talking just building farms or planting trees in order to, you know, get apples or something like that. No, I'm talking massive burning projects that may have created the Great Plains. It was mentioned by many Europeans sailing past the East Coast about the amount of smoke that would be rising in the air along the coast. This burning was done in order to basically create different environments depending on what they needed. By burning down forests uh, of old growth, you could create new growth and get new types of trees. Different types of animals would show up there and uh, and in different types of of food would be available. It also would help with the nutrients in the soil. Along with all of this, the burning kept the undergrowth in forests at a minimum, which would allow for much easier travel, which would actually become very important later on in the story. I said the Great Plains were created. It's not fully understood if this is true, but it is possible that these, the meadows and the savannas and all of this throughout the East Coast and the Great Plains were actually completely created in order to give way for a different type of animal to live there, uh, the bison being one of them. Along with this agricultural change, there are also avid hunters. And this idea that um, the natives lived off the land and respected nature might have been true for some, some of the some of the nations, but it is a bit of a stereotype that is kind of founded in, I don't know, this weird uh, utopic vision of what America was like for the natives before the evil, evil Europeans came. And obviously, the Europeans and the natives treated nature very differently. This is not disputed. But the natives were not, you know, tree-hugging nature lovers. Researcher Thomas W. Newman says, quote, Indians actually sought out pregnant or nursing does, which hunters today are instructed to let go. They hunted wild turkeys in spring just before they laid eggs. If they had waited until the eggs hatched, the poults could have survived because they will follow any hen. The pattern was so consistent that Indians must have been purposefully reducing the number of deer, raccoons, and turkeys. End quote. So they didn't just, you know, create vast forests and, and make, make it easier for them to travel they were trying to cultivate different types of food in different areas and would kill animals in order to do that, to make sure that they could get all of the tree nuts and they didn't have any competition. So as a whole, if we look at all of the agriculture, the, the natives made a very big mark. Charles C. Mann says it like this, quote, At the time of Columbus, the Western Hemisphere had been thoroughly painted with a human brush. Agriculture occurred in as much as two-thirds of what is now continental United States, with large swaths of the southwest terraced and irrigated. Among the maize fields in the Midwest and Southeast, mounds by the thousand stippled the land. The forests of the eastern seaboard had been peeled back from the coasts, which were now lined with farms. Salmon nets stretched across almost every ocean-bound stream in the northwest, and almost everywhere there was Indian fire. South of the Rio Grande, 
Indians had converted the Mexican basin and the Yucatan into artificial environments suitable for farming. Terraces and canals and stony highways lined the western face of the Andes, raised fields and causeways, covered the Beni. Agriculture reached down into Argentina and central Chile. Indians had converted perhaps a quarter of the vast Amazon forest into farms and agricultural forests and the once forested Andes to grass and brush. End quote. The agricultural shifts that were brought upon by the natives were extensive, and, and Mann continues on later to kind of point out that, that what likely, we don't really know for sure, what likely covered the land uh, of North America, at least a vast part of it, would be what we see in Seattle, in Yosemite, these vast, vast forests of very tall trees, incredible amounts of undergrowth, and very wet. These areas are not at all what we see today in, in North America. We have several different regions that are completely different from each other. And, and something that's actually a little bit ironic about this is something that historian Stephen Pine says, quote, The virgin forest was not encountered in the 16th and 17th centuries. It was invented in the late 18th century and early 19th centuries. And then man continues, far from destroying the pristine wilderness, that is, Europeans created it, end quote. This vast network of agricultural shifts was so extensive and, and so well managed that as soon as the disease started to hit the natives, it all got disrupted. And the forests that the Europeans encountered when they first got to Americas that they saw were, you know, so vast and great were created, crafted, and designed by natives for food. It's incredible. Obviously, the shape of the forests wasn't the main impact of the Europeans arriving. And we will see in the next episode just how bad that impact is. Mostly disease, but also obviously just violence and subjugation and slavery. But it's hard to get a sense of how bad that is without actually understanding how many people lived in North America or, or in the Western Hemisphere as a whole before the Europeans arrived. And that number is pretty hard to get. There's been study after study over the centuries trying to understand how many people lived here. And that number went anywhere from a few million all the way up to several hundred million. But right now... The most accepted number of people that lived in the Western Hemisphere is somewhere between 40 to, let's say, 150 million people. And this is obviously spread out very widely throughout the region, but the most heavily densely populated area we know about is in the Oaxaca Valley in Mexico, followed probably by the western part of the Andes, unless the Amazon was way more populated than we understand today. So looking at it, it's probably closer to that 80 to 100 million people, just because our best guess at the Oaxaca Valley alone is about 25 to 30 million people. And I, I, my point to bring up the numbers isn't just to, you know, eventually point out, well, most of these people are dead, well, all of them are dead, but most of them died within 100 years, and the population shrank by about 95%. But I want to go further than that and 
understand just how much human capital, how much human brain power was lost because the people living here were still human. I think something that often is missed, and this is true in in the past and also today for different reasons, but there is this sense that people, and, and Charles C. Mann states this in, in the you know beginning of his book, 1491, that there's this tendency to look at the natives as people that didn't really have agency. They lived in a world that moved without their input, that they just were riding the wave of whatever the world brought. And I hope that this podcast shows that that is almost the opposite from being the truth. These were incredibly sophisticated people. At some points, more sophisticated than those across the oceans. They had agency, they built empires, their empires failed, they had wars, they had peace, they invented things, they created great farms, they changed the land entirely. And and the old way of looking at these at these people, the, the people in America, the natives, the Americans, as the noble savage, as these people who were basically only slightly better than animals. And if you look, you know, back in the textbooks of, say, the 1940s, Charles C. Mann talks about how they, they described Indians as backwards, right? So they needed to be civilized. That was their purpose. But today, it's a little bit different. But arguably, the the way that the natives were, are looked at is, is not too different. It's just repackaged. There's this idea, um, and Mann points out about uh, Henry David Thoreau and his, his look at Indian wisdom and, and looking at a way to look at science or, or nature in a different way than, than white people or Europeans in general or just in Western culture. And I think it looks at it from basically the same angle in which these people were so fundamentally different than Europeans. And maybe there's the difference between, well, they needed to be civilized versus now it's, well, we just need to leave them alone and let them live their natured, free lives. But that's not, as we've seen, what the natives were like. They created empires. They changed the land. They hunted things to extinction, hunted animals to extinction, created environments so that animals would not live there in order to make sure that they could get the plants that they wanted. They flattened mountains, built mounds, built canals. All of these things are not, you know, do not comport to a nature-loving, perfect society. It's the opposite, right? They are human, and a lot of this comes from the this you know European vision of the of the Americas as this untamed wilderness, which we now know is wrong. My hope is that we stop making the same mistake using different language, and understand that the people that lived in the Americas were also people. They were humans, with all of the greatness that humans can muster. There's also all of the terrible things that humans can do, and they did all of it. I think when what it all comes down to is that we need to give the natives agency. 
And because they are humans, agency is what they deserve and it is what they need. And to take away agency is to take away their humanity. Yeah.